I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we look to scripture and attempt to make the things that are hidden just beneath the surface of the text understandable to a wide audience. The book of Exodus, it's more than a story. It's more than a narrative. It's more than an explanation. It's more than simply an escape from Egypt. The book of Exodus is a revelation of the full name of God, not simply the four letters that make up the name, but his name in all of its wonder and glory, his honor, his character, reputation, authority, and so much more. And this revelation begins from scratch at the beginning of the book of Exodus. And this revelation is for all people, not simply the people of Israel. As such, much of what is revealed in the very beginning is foundational. The beginning of the book demonstrates character traits and qualities that we as believers are familiar with, but that the events of the book of Exodus reveal in great depth. Not just for us, but for anyone and everyone. Because of this, some of the revelation of God contained in this book can seem repetitive or even elementary. Now, this is part of why the beginning of the book is so exciting. It is to draw in unbelievers and help them to recognize the truth of the God of Israel through the use of epic narrative before getting to such things as laws and worship. And no event in the beginning of the Exodus teaches us as much about the God of Israel as the plagues that descend on Egypt. These plagues reveal a wealth of understanding about God that is compacted down into just a few chapters of plagues. So while we are spending three weeks in all ten plagues of the Exodus, we are proceeding through them in the same order of topic as the book of Genesis does. Wait a minute, what's that? Genesis? How do we see Genesis reflected in the plagues of the Exodus? Well, last week we looked at how the plagues revealed Hashem as the God of creation. In the beginning, God created the earth. He formed light, weather, land, food. He created things to operate in these three realms. Sun, moon, and stars, birds and fish, beasts and man. And then on the seventh day, God rested and entered into his throne room to reign and to rule over all creation. The plagues of Egypt demonstrate Hashem's absolute control over each and every aspect of creation from both the biblical and the Egyptian mythological point of view. His power is demonstrated in such a way that as the final plagues are accomplished, we see the very fabric of creation being destroyed in the land of Egypt. The vegetation, animals, and then light, and life, and so on. Well, after the creation story in Genesis, the next major event that is related is the flood. 
Now, what was the flood? The flood itself, as we talked about back in Genesis, in episode 5, I believe it was, it's a reversal of creation in its own right. But it serves as more than just that. The flood serves as judgment upon the world, a a demonstration of God's like-for-like payment. You see, one of God's greatest qualities on display is his justice, and justice requires judgment. And judgment, it's not always a bad thing. For Noah, he was judged worthy and extended grace and was given a way to escape the judgment that descended upon the earth. For Israel and Egypt, judgment creates the path out of Egypt. It's a way to escape the shackles that held them in slavery. Judgment is only a bad thing for those who are guilty. For those who are not only guilty, but then unrepentant of their sins. And this is what we are going to examine today. The way that the plagues demonstrate not only the justice of God, but the patience of God, and how his patience creates space for many to escape from the fury of his justice. So let's read this week's text and then go through the plagues once again. This time, not from the point of view of the God of creation, but this time from the point of view of the God of justice. Exodus 8.20-9.35 And Hashem said to Moshe, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water, and say to him, Thus said Hashem, Let my people go so that they serve me. Or else, if you do not let my people go, see, I am sending swarms of flies on you and your servants, and on your people, and into your houses. And the houses of the Mitzrites shall be filled with swarms of flies, and also the ground on which they stand. And in that day I shall separate the land of Goshen in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there, so that you know that I am Hashem in the midst of the land. And I shall put a ransom between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall be. And Hashem did so, and thick swarms of flies came into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses, and into all the land of Mitzrayim, and the land was ruined because of the swarms of flies. Pharaoh then called for Moshe and Aaron and said, Go, slaughter to your Elohim in the land. And Moshe said, It is not right to do so, for we would be slaughtering the abomination of the Mitzrites to Hashem our Elohim. See, if we slaughter the abomination of the Mitzrites before their eyes, would they not stone us? Let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, and then we shall slaughter to Hashem our Elohim, as he commanded us. And Pharaoh said, I am letting you go, then you shall slaughter to Hashem your Elohim in the wilderness. Only do not go very far away. Pray for me. And Moshe said, See, when I leave you, I shall pray to Hashem, and tomorrow the swarms of flies shall depart from Pharaoh, from his servant and from his people. But do not let Pharaoh again deceive, not to let the people go to sacrifice to Hashem. And Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to Hashem. And Hashem did according to the word of Moshe, and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, and from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time too, and did not let the people go. And Hashem said to Moshe, Go in to Pharaoh and speak to him. Thus said Hashem Elohim of the Hebrews, Let my people go so that they serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and are still holding them, see the hand of Hashem is on your livestock in the field, on the horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, and the cattle and on the sheep, a very grievous pestilence. And Hashem shall separate between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Mitzrayim. 
and let no matter die of all that belongs to the children of Israel. And Hashem set an appointed time, saying, Tomorrow Hashem is going to do this word in the land. And Hashem did this word on the next day, and all the livestock of Mitzrayim died, but of the livestock of the children of Israel, not one died. Then Pharaoh sent and see, not even one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And Hashem said to Moshe and Aharon, Fill your hands with ashes from a furnace, and let Moshe scatter it towards the heavens before the eyes of Pharaoh, and it shall become a fine dust in all the land of Mitzrayim, and it shall cause boils that break out in the sores on man and beast in all the land of Mitzrayim. So they took ashes from the furnace and stood before Pharaoh, and Moshe scattered them towards the heaven, and they caused boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians were unable to stand before Moshe because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians and on all the Mitzrites. But Hashem strengthened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as Hashem had said to Moshe. And Hashem said to Moshe, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says Hashem Elohim of the Hebrews, Let my people go so that they serve me. For at this time I am sending all my plagues unto your heart, and on your servant, and on your people, so that you know that there is no one like me in all the earth. Now if I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. And for this reason I have raised you up, in order to show you my power, and in order to declare my name in all the earth. You still exalt yourself against my people, in that you do not let them go. See, tomorrow about this time I am causing very heavy hail to rain down, such as not been in Mitzrayim from the day of its founding until now. And now send, bring your livestock to safety and all that you have in the field, for the hail shall come down on every man and every beast which is found in the field, and is not brought home, and they shall die. Those among the servants of Pharaoh who feared the word of Hashem made their servants and livestock flee to the houses. But those who did not set their heart on the word of Hashem left their servants and livestock in the field. Then Hashem said to Moshe, Stretch out your hand towards the heavens, and let there be hail in all the land of Mitzrayim, on man and on beast and on every plant of the field throughout the land of Mitzrayim. Then Moshe stretched out his rod toward the heavens, and Hashem sent thunder and hail and fire came down to the earth and Hashem rained hail on the land of Mitzrayim. Thus there came to be hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy, such as not been in all the land of Mitzrayim since it became a nation. And the hail struck in all the land of Mitzrayim, all that was in the field, both man and beast. And the hail struck every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. Pharaoh then sent and called for Moshe and for Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. Hashem is righteous, and my people and I are wrong. Pray to Hashem, for there has been enough of the thunder and hail of Elohim, and I am letting you go so that you stay no longer. And Moshe said to them, As soon as I go out of the city, let me spread out my hands to Hashem. Let the thunder cease and the hail be no more, so that you know that the earth belongs to Hashem. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear before Hashem Elohim. And the flax and the barley were struck, for the barley was in the head, and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat and the spelt were not struck, for they were late crops. 
And Moshe went out of the city from Pharaoh and spread out his hands to Hashem. And the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain was not poured on the earth. And Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased. Yet he sinned again, and he hardened his heart, he and his servants. And the heart of Pharaoh was strengthened, and he did not let the children of Israel go, as Hashem had said through Moshe. Well, there is so much in these plagues that could be explored. So much that could be said. Like the fact that every third plague, the first, fourth, and the seventh, Moses is told to rise up early in the morning and to go stand before Pharaoh while he's in water. The fact that Aaron is the one to take action for the first three plagues. In the second three, it's neither Aaron nor Moses, or both Aaron and Moses. And in the last three, it's only Moses that takes action to precipitate the plague. The fact that Pharaoh seems to believe that he is haggling with God, and that each time, as he gives a little, never to the point of the initial request, though, God then demands more from him. It goes from a three-day journey to a complete release. It goes from, let us go and sacrifice, to, you yourself will provide the animals for our sacrifice. It goes from, let us go with just what we have, to the people of Egypt giving them all their wealth, just so that they'll leave. And the occurrence of various patterns throughout these plagues, it's super deep, and each one reveals something new. Each one of these patterns is interesting to contemplate and ponder in their own right, and then to meditate on in connection to each other. I highly recommend that you take the time to think on why these patterns exist in the text, and what they might reveal. But this week we're focusing on the revelation of the plagues of God's justice and true justice means a trial. In several places in Scripture, God is depicted as a judge with a heavenly court and in a courtroom. Books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, Psalms, Revelations, and more speak of God as judge and describe His courtroom and declare that His judgment will come upon all the earth. For myself, for a long time, I really enjoyed courtroom dramas, both television and book. I would read everything that John Grisham had written, and at one point I read everything that he wrote within the course of a year. And as I considered the idea of justice of God and his heavenly court, and then the plagues as an act of justice, it struck me that these plagues are, in a way, their own trial. And so, this week, we have the trial of the ages. So, if this is a courtroom and God is the judge, then we need to set up the courtroom and explore the case that's being made against Egypt. So, in a courtroom, there are several things present, several roles that need to be filled. The prosecutor, the defendant, the lawyers for each side, the witnesses, and so forth. Welcome to the Heavenly Court. Today, the plaintiff is the people of Israel. They state that while living in the land of Egypt, their landlords took their rights away, treated them as mere animals. Their children were taken from them and thrown into a river, and they were forced to work without a break to fix up the landlord's property. The lawyers for the prosecution that have been appointed by the judge are Moses and Aaron, two sons of Levi, one raised up among the Hebrews and the other kidnapped from his family and adopted by the landlord's own daughter. The defendant is the people of the land of Egypt. The lawyers for the defense are Pharaoh, the human embodiment of the great Osiris, the king of kings, the most powerful man in the world, and he has brought his entire legal team with him. 
of particular interest in this case will be the magicians, Pharaoh's legal experts and practicers of law and justice. The defendant claims that Israel was a squatter in the land and that they were a threat to the security and safety of the land, the people, and Pharaoh himself. We have a host of witnesses lined up today. The defense will be calling on their gods, the gods of Egypt. The case to be made is that Pharaoh and his magicians were granted the power and authority to enact these policies in the borders of Egypt. And in a surprise move, the prosecution is calling on no one. They're confident that they can make their case without any witnesses for their side. This is a risky move, so join us today in the Heavenly Courts. And so the trial begins. The lawyers meet each other before the trial to see if there can be a simple way to settle this case. The prosecution asks only one thing. Egypt, will you let these people go just for a single week? They've brought a case before the judge and have declared that you are infringing upon the right of the people to worship their God and travel freely in the world. The prosecution has demonstrated that the charges that are being brought before the court today through a series of signs, and the sign says that you've lowered the status of these people to mere animals, that you've tried to kill their babies while they were in the womb, and that when that failed, you resorted to throwing their children in the river to destroy them. Now, they're willing to settle out of court for this simple demonstration of goodwill towards them. If you're willing to give them this, then the whole trial can be skipped and the case will be dismissed. Pharaoh stands and declares that they will not settle because they have done nothing wrong. Everything that they did was done under the authority of his gods and for the sake of peace and safety. And the case heads to trial. And so it is that the first witnesses are called in the case of the ages, the people of Israel versus the people of Egypt. The defendant calls its first witness the god Kanum, the god of the Nile River and the former of flesh in the mother's womb the self-described divine potter and lord of created things. Kanum takes the stand and declares that it is his power and his might that creates life in the womb, and declares that it is his power and his might that can take life in the womb. Israel was an existential threat to Egypt in that he approved of the steps taken to keep them in line. Upon cross-examination, however, the witness is forced to relate story after story of child being ripped from a mother's loving arms, to admit the tears of fathers and mothers falling in him, and of the blood of babies hidden just beneath his surface. And as the truth comes out and Kanum breaks down in tears, the water of the Nile itself turned to blood and revealed to all the truth of what Egypt had forced him to do. The lawyers for the defense stand up and yell, Objection! This testimony is invalid as it proves nothing. The legal team for the defense can replicate this witness themselves, and so the fact that the waters turn to blood prove nothing. And so the objection is sustained, and a second witness is called. The defense calls on the goddess Hecht, the wife of Kanum. The goddess of fertility and life, as represented by a frog, takes the stand. She is the self-proclaimed one who hastens the birth and brings about the germination of the seed in the ground. Hecht declares under examination that it is her role to quicken the seed, and so it was her role to destroy the seed in the womb. It was her power that caused the Israeli women to miscarry early on. The prosecution then cross-examines the witness, and upon cross-examination it's revealed that she was coerced by the legal team of the defense into saying this, and that Pharaoh had actually attempted to disrupt her power over the quickening of the seed, and, in fact, 
she had no power at all. They had created her and set her up as a stooge for their plot. The people of Egypt had killed those children in the womb and had used her as the excuse. And frogs explode forth from the waters of the Nile and cover the courtroom in every corner, revealing her shame and her powerlessness as she is unable to control the frogs at all. At this, the lawyer for the defense once again objects. They too are able to replicate this plague, and the fact that the frogs are everywhere is of little concern. The prosecution then asks that the witness in the questioning be stricken from the record. The lawyers for the prosecution agree, and the frogs are withdrawn from the courtroom. At this point, a third witness is called. The defense calls Geb, the god of the earth, the father of snakes and earthquakes, the one who causes crops to grow and the self-proclaimed father of the first god-king of Egypt, and who grants authority and legitimacy to kings. Geb steps up and declares that he had given Pharaoh power and authority in Egypt, and that anything that Pharaoh declares is law. The prosecution then cross-examines the witness. You say that you are the king-maker and the one who grants authority, but is it not true that there is one greater than you who gave you any authority that you may have? Is it not true that authority and power is to be tempered by justice, and what has occurred in Egypt is not just? In fact, you're simply playing at God in rebellion to the one who has all authority, the one who is the true king-maker. The defense declares, smacking his staff on the stand. In an attempt to excuse himself from the stand, the god of earth collapses into a cloud of dust, and the dust turns into gnats that engulf the courtroom. The lawyers for the defense huddle around their table. They know that this does not look good. They want to object to this argument, but they have no case. This argument is sound, and they have no way to object. Besides, their witness has already abdicated the stand. At this, a first crack appears in the defense. More witnesses are called for a fourth round of questioning. This time, rather than just a single witness, the defense calls a series of witnesses back to back to plead their case. First, Wadjet, the protector of Egypt, the goddess of justice whose symbol is the cobra. Wadjet declares that Israel was a threat to Egypt and it was Pharaoh's job to protect Egypt from them. Cross-examination reveals that Israel had never exhibited any threat to Egypt, and so protection was completely misplaced, and swarms of cobras appear around the feet of the defense. Then Amut, Sobek, and Tawaret, the triplet gods of justice, power, and respect who are symbolized by the crocodile, are called to the stand. Amut, Sobek, and Tawaret declare that Israel was guilty of trying to usurp the power of Pharaoh and take his respect from him. But cross-examination reveals that Israel had never acted to overturn even a single act of Pharaoh, even when he had turned against them, and swarms of crocodiles appear on the side of the defense. Aker, the god of strength, leadership, and ferocity, whose symbol is the lion, takes the sand. And Aker declares that the power of Egypt must be used ferociously to defend the people and protect the crown. But... Cross-examination reveals that Israel submitted to Pharaoh in everything. They even paid their taxes on time and in full. Such ferocity was unwarranted and cruel. The defense cracks even further and they make a counter-offer to settle the case now in the midst of the trial. Now this is unheard of. Settlement of the trial once it has started, but the judge allows the offer to be made. The defense offers, we will let you go and worship your God, but you can't leave the land to do so. 
Perhaps we did go a bit too far in our zeal to protect our land from a threat, but that doesn't mean that you're free to go. Our power over you must remain absolute. Well, the prosecution rejects this offer out of hand, and the offer is withdrawn by the defense, and a new round of witnesses is summoned. The defense calls Amun, the ram-headed god. Amun ascended to power when he led victory of the foreign usurpers of the Hyksos and rose from a local deity in Thebes to the national god of power. Amun declares that Israel was, in fact, foreign invaders who sought to overthrow the rightfully appointed rulers of Egypt, and so it was required that they be subjugated and brought low. Cross-examination reminds the court that this accusation was addressed in the last round of witnesses. Israel never meant any harm. They simply wished to coexist in the land. The defense then calls Hathor, the feminine counterpart of Ra, the one who defeats the enemies of Pharaoh and the goddess of maternity and protection. Hathor, the cow-headed goddess, declares that Israel was a threat to not simply Egypt, but to Pharaoh specifically, and so it was just that Pharaoh be protected. But cross-examination asks for a single shred of evidence that Israel ever attempted to take power or overthrow Pharaoh. Without evidence that this was being plotted, the accusation is simply the imaginings of a deranged mind. As if to highlight these false words, a runner rushes in from outside to relate that the cattle of Egypt had suddenly died, but that Israel's cattle was spared. The defense doesn't even acknowledge this defeat. They simply allow it to happen and take pride in their just cause. A sixth round of witnesses are called. For the defense they call Thoth, the god of magic, the settler of godly disputes, the god of writing and science, and the judge of the dead. He was one of the two guards of the chariot of Ra as he makes his trek across the sky, the god of equilibrium and order. Thoth declares that Israel threatened to upend the equilibrium of Egypt and that their subjugation was required to maintain the balance. The prosecution easily proves that the subjugation of Israel was nothing even close to balanced or even-handed. Then the defense calls Isis. Oh, a major blow to the prosecution. Isis is the wife of Osiris, the queen of the gods, the goddess of medicine and health as well as motherhood and fraternity and protector of the young. She declares that Israel was a danger to the people of Egypt and that she removed her protection from the children of Israel and allowed them to be destroyed by the earthly image of her husband, Pharaoh. Cross-examination proves that Isis was never the protector of the young of Israel, that she was incapable of withdrawing that which was not hers to begin with. The defense at this double over in pain as their own masters, Thoth, the god of magic, and Isis, the heavenly wife of Pharaoh, both intimately involved in human health, are proven to be lying and abusing their powers. At this, the lawyers are called up to the bench. Six rounds of witnesses have passed, three more rounds of witnesses to go. The prosecution declares that Egypt should let Israel go, that the defense glowers at Moses and begins to argue. The judge shuts the defense lawyer of Pharaoh down and declares, If I were to judge you now, you would be cut off from the earth. The judge continues, I have appointed you to the position that you have so that the justice of this court will be known in all the earth. But you, Pharaoh, you're only interested in defending yourself. You're not interested in justice. So the trial will continue until you have totally made your case. And so the trial is resumed after a quick recess, and a seventh round of witnesses are called. 
The defense calls on her, the bearer of the sky and the god of war. On her declares that it was a simple military policy to subjugate the Hebrews. Otherwise, should Egyptians have been attacked by invaders, Israel would have risen up at a time of war and caused the defeat of Egypt. Cross-examination, however, reveals that Egypt was only acting this way because of what had happened with the Hyksos. Upon further questioning, it's revealed that Egypt was using Israel to take out decades of Egyptian humiliation under Hyksos rule. Then the defense calls Shechemet, the daughter of Ra and the goddess of fire, a protector of Pharaoh and the one who leads Egypt to war. She concurs with on her that it was military policy to subjugate Israel. They were a potential threat and must be dealt with swiftly. Cross-examination reminds the court that Israel had not interfered when Egypt had overthrown the Hyksos. Equating the two was sheer folly. Then the defense calls Tefnut, the goddess of moisture, the mother of heaven and earth. She was a goddess with great power and was the sustainer of the breath of life. The court gasps when Tefnut is called. She has great power and is the third god created in the beginning. This is a substantial witness. She takes her seat at the stand and declares in her testimony that her grandson, Osiris' physical manifestation, was righteous to do whatever it took to protect his kingdom from enemies and oppressors. The prosecution objects at this. He states that it has already been proven that Israel was not a military power or threat. The slanderous accusations of the three previous gods were not to be tolerated. Egypt had dealt unjustly with Israel and ascribed motives that were not there. The judge slams his gavel down and calls a sustained and a great hailstorm erupts with fire in its midst. The defense pales at this denunciation of his witnesses, and he admits his fault in this one area, and declares that Egypt sinned in viewing Israel as a military threat and asks that the trial be moved forward. The judge agrees to relent with the hail. He then calls a quick recess and calls the lawyers into his chambers. The judge declares, I am righteous and just. You have no case, Pharaoh. Every witness that you've paraded through my courtroom today has been a sham, and these continuous slanderous accusations will not be permitted. If you refuse to humble yourself and admit your guilt, your punishment will be greater than all that has come before. Now make your case or admit defeat and let Israel go. The defense lawyers confer with the magicians and tell Pharaoh, the case is lost. Egypt is lost. Give it up now. We're already destroyed. Don't continue on this foolish trial. Settle now, before the judgment. Repent and admit your wrong. Pharaoh considers this for a time, and then responds with a settlement offer. Okay, Israel can go and serve their God, but only the men can go. Women and the children, they are not needed for worship. Leave them behind as a demonstration of your goodwill towards us. Well, the prosecution will not agree to these terms, and so the parties head back to their benches to continue the trial. An eighth round of witnesses is called to the stand. The defense calls Osiris, the firstborn of Geb and Nut, the god of fertility, alcohol, agriculture, life, and vegetation, the protector of the crops, the king of kings, and the judge of the dead. Osiris solemnly takes the stand and explains that Israel... Well, Israel are interlopers, and they're thieves. They'd taken the best of the land and the best of his produce for themselves, and they had left Egypt with nothing. They were thieves, and they deserved to be treated as such. But cross-examination reveals that Israel had been given their place in the land by Egypt, 
and that they had been good tenants for centuries. The defense then calls Shu, the husband of Tefnut, the god of air and wind and the god of peace. Once again, the court falls silent. Shu is a major shooter. There's only one god who's greater than Shu, and you don't get much higher than him. Shu takes the stand and declares that Israel was subjected for the purpose of peace. As regrettable as it was that this happened, without these actions, the peace would not have lasted. Cross-examination reveals that there had already been peace before any action was taken. Any war that had occurred in the past had not come from Israel, but from other sources. It was Pharaoh who had broken the peace. And the winds of Shu blew a plague of locusts right past Osiris' protection, and they devoured the rest of the vegetation that had survived the hail. Pharaoh once again calls for this line of questioning to be overturned. I have sinned in this as well, he declares openly before the court. And the judge asks, Will you let Israel go? Will you relent from your persecution? The lawyer for the defense confers a moment, stalling until the locusts disappear. And then Pharaoh stands from his bench and declares loudly and viciously, No! And so, witnesses are called for one last time. The defense calls Ra to the stand. The god of the sun, the god of order, the god of the sky, ruler and king over all of the created world, the greatest and most powerful of the gods of Egypt. Ra takes the stand with a haughty air and declares in a loud voice, I am the king of all, I am the day star, I am the creator and the sustainer of life, I decide what is just and I give authority to whom I please. This court is a trial and a farce because I have given all authority on earth to Pharaoh and what he decides to do in this matter. Well, he represents me and I am incapable of being unjust. Pharaoh sits back in his chair with a smirk. His magicians begin to celebrate. Their ace card has been played, and there's nothing that this rabble of a prosecution can possibly say in their defense. Cross-examination approaches Ra hesitantly, stands up straight, and begins his questioning. The questions last a long time, but it's teased out that Ra is himself a created thing. He is a tool in the hands of the true master of all. He is simply a functionary of creation. It's pointed out that Ra was not present until day four of creation. He was given his place and his authority and his role by another. Ra looks up at the bench as if noticing the identity of the judge for the first time and pales. The master, the ruler, sits on the throne. There is a justice greater than his. There is a power greater than his, an authority greater than his. He cowers in shame at the claims that he has just made. And the sun goes out over all of Egypt. Everyone on the side of the defense freezes in place as Ra attempts to make his way out of the courtroom without even his own light to guide him. When the light returns, the judge heads to his chamber for three days to deliberate. The three days pass and the judge returns to the courtroom and declares his verdict. Egypt has been found guilty of oppression and destruction. The gods of Egypt have been judged as frauds and liars and have been judged powerless and without proper authority. Egypt has been found guilty of murder, oppression, kidnapping, slavery, persecution, and a general corruption of justice. The sentence to be carried out midnight the 15th of the first month, and the judgment is as follows. 
Egypt is to give Israel items of gold and silver and garments as payment for back wages. The firstborn of every family of Egypt is to die in recompense of the countless deaths that have been perpetrated on Israel. And Israel is to be allowed to go free from the land of Egypt. But, the judge declares, there is a catch. Anyone who is of Egypt, if they repent of their sins, renounce their citizenship in Egypt, join themselves to Israel, and cover themselves in their household with the blood of a lamb, they will not be subject to this judgment. They too will have to leave Egypt with Israel, but they will not be held accountable in judgment. Each and every person will be given the opportunity to side with either the defense or the prosecution of their own free will. No one will be subject to the upcoming sentence without their own declaration. And with that, the judge slams his gavel down on the bench, and the trial is over. And for millennia to come, the transcript of the trial of the ages, the people of Israel versus the people of Egypt, is poured over by all who wish to truly understand justice. The verdict is recounted, the witnesses are spoken of, the sentence and declaration of justice is acted out year after year, and the world sits back in awe at the patience, mercy, and justice shown by the judge in the trial, and we wipe our brows and we say, phew, I'm glad that I won't ever have to face anything like that. And we go on with our lives and forget that scripture records another time in which a similar trial will take take place. In Revelation, we read of another trial on the inhabitants of the earth, a series of judgments that will be leveled at those who have engaged in abominations. In fact, many of the judgments to come are so similar to the plagues on Egypt that there are many who have noticed this correlation before. The process begins in a similar way. War, famine, disease, and death unleashed on the earth, and the martyrs that have gone before God cry out to God, How long, O Master, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The charge is made, and so a series of judgments begin on the earth. The sixth seal being a great earthquake, the sun becoming a sackcloth and the moon as blood. The first trumpet being hail and fire mixed with blood this time. The second trumpet. A third of the seas become blood after a mountain is thrown into them. The third trumpet, a third of the waters are turned to poison. The fourth trumpet, a third of the sun, moon, and stars are darkened. The fifth trumpet being a swarm of locusts that you do not ever want to encounter. The first bowl being sores on all who worship the beast. The second bowl being the seas turning to blood. The third bowl being the rivers and springs becoming blood. The fourth bowl being the sun's intensity increasing and burning men. The fifth bowl, darkness covering the kingdom of the beast. The sixth bowl, the Euphrates dries up, the great river of the kingdom of Babylon. The seventh bowl, an enormous earthquake and 75-pound hailstones. If this is not a repeat of the plagues of Egypt, I don't know what is. You see, the God of Israel, he's just. His justice, it might be delayed, but that's for our own good. If his justice were not delayed, not a single one of us would be left standing. His justice is something that is carried out bit by bit. God gives people the opportunity to turn back from their wickedness and transgression. But justice cannot be delayed forever. Justice that is delayed forever becomes no justice at all. It must come. 
It must be meted out. But each and every one of us is given a chance. Do you side with Pharaoh, the one who is unable to plead his case, the one who is revealed to be powerless and without authority, though he claims all? Or do you side with Hashem, the one who has all power and authority in both heaven and earth? If you choose Hashem, then you must accept the blood of the Lamb and revoke all citizenship that you once had in Egypt. And this is just the beginning, because the Exodus does not stop at Passover. This is just the first step in obedience and fealty to the God of justice. Until we get there, though, we see God is just, and He will ensure that justice is done. And it is through this exercise of justice that life can be found. And it is this that we must grasp as we derish chai, as we seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Derish Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Derish Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.